0: Captain Townsend came on board just four months before the incident, and he was faced with some interracial incidents that he dealt with at captain's masts. But from the very beginning, he was punishing black sailors more severely than he was punishing white sailors for the same offenses. And in this case, it involved assaults. And he had four different incidents of white sailors assaulting black sailors, both in port and on the ship, and in each case, he basically let him skate.
1: An excerpt from today's guest, who discusses a little-known racial incident aboard the USS Kitty Hawk during the Vietnam War. Author Marv Truhee is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point in the Spirit. Summer is a great time for catching up on military history, and my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II, Immortal Valor, has just been released in paperback. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you pick up the new paperback version, hardcover, or audiobook, available in stores and online. Welcome back. And before we get into the show, remember to click that follow button on the podcast to be notified of our future fantastic guests like the author we're speaking with today, and thank you. Today's guest served as a Navy JAG lawyer and military judge during the Vietnam War. Following his military service, he was an assistant attorney general for South Dakota before entering private practice. He defended six of the black sailors charged with rioting and assaults on the USS Kitty Hawk. His book is called Against All Tides. The Untold Story of the USS Kitty Hawk Race Riot, and author Marv Truhi joins us now. Marv, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. It's our pleasure, sir. Now, you were involved with this incident after the fact as a naval defense attorney, but you decided to write a book about it years after the incident. Why did you decide to write the book, and why did it take so long?
0: I actually started writing the book, Rob, at the time. In my last year in the Navy, I was sitting as a military judge. And uh, during the trials, which lasted for about six months, I began collecting all of the They included trial and hearing transcripts, medical reports, of course, all investigation reports and so forth, with the idea that someday I was going to finish that book. I ended up with about five banker's boxes, thousands of documents. And it took me 49 years later before I took up the effort in January of last year. I don't have a really good explanation as to why it, it took that long, but I did have some incentives uh, that probably led me to picking up this project again. This was an author friend here in Colorado who, when he heard about my experience and the fact that I was personally involved with those trials, uh, suggested that I finish the book. And it was probably influenced also uh, by the racial unrest, unfortunately, that's been going on in our country Mm -hmm. now. Sure. George Floyd incident, to to name just one. Well, maybe a quick background on the incident itself. It happened off the coast of Vietnam 50 years ago in October. And it involves some very serious racial injustices, plural, uh, against black sailors. And that particular evening, the USS Kitty Hawk an attack carrier was conducting bombing operations into North Vietnam. And this interracial violence arose. It lasted for six hours and there were 51 sailors injured seriously enough that they had medical reports issued for them. Three of them actually had to be flown off the ship for further surgery. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began writing the book, as I said, a year ago, in January. And a few months later, I began looking for a literary agent. I was very fortunate. I found one actually here in Colorado uh, in just a couple of days, and he found a publisher in in about two weeks. Uh, So, It's record time. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm a first-time author. It's a huge learning curve for me to, to get through this process, and I'm still learning every day.
1: No, the tensions were building up on the ship prior to the incident in October 1972. What was the atmosphere like and what were a couple of those incidents? Well, I think that the tension
0: uh, that was aboard ship, even aside from interracial issues, was the fact that that carrier had been online for 50 days at that time, meaning off the coast conducting daily operations. Those bombing runs lasted for 12 hours a day, and that meant the sailors Many of them were working six hours on, six hours off around the clock for weeks at a time. Mm. So there was a tremendous amount of tension already. Uh, the other contributing factor, and it was a big one, had to do with the new captain. Captain Townsend came on board just four months before the incident, and he was faced with some interracial incidents that he dealt with at captain's masts. Captain's masts are non-judicial punishments that take place on board the ship. But from the very beginning, he was punishing black sailors more severely than he was punishing white sailors for the same offenses. And in this case, it involved assaults. Uh, the first couple of uh, incidents, he punished black sailors by throwing them in the brig for 30 days, diet of bread and water, busted them and ranked and fined them. And he had four different incidents of white sailors assaulting black sailors, both in port and on the ship. And in each case, he basically let them skate. He didn't even bring charges in three of them. And the only one that he brought to mast, he gave him a $25 fine. Now, you can imagine the impact that had on the sailors. Uh, Incidentally, there were approximately 7% of the ship's complement of 4,500 that were black sailors, uh, a total of about 300. And those Incidents and this mishandling of those incidents caused a lot of tension on board.
1: What was the spark that finally lit it all off?
0: There are actually a couple of things. Uh, first of all, to give you the background of this, security on board a carrier is carried on by the military, what we call military police in the army, uh, but they in the navy they call them master at arms. And there was also a Marine detachment on board, but they are only backup security. There are about 60 of them, and they are trained to respond only from orders from their captain or other superior officers. The incident actually began on the mess deck uh, where the sailors have their meals. And then there was an altercation between black and whites. There was no fighting, but just an altercation, arguing, and so forth. And a mess cook decided that he wanted to get the Marines involved. He ran down a couple of levels and told the Marines that there were trouble on the aft mess deck and 20 of them came running with their nightsticks. Now, unfortunately, when they came up, again, without any proper orders, they confronted the black sailors only and started forcing them back, what they called a blocking unit. In another aggravating circumstances, one of those Marines drew his service pistol and really put a lot of fright into the black sailors. Luckily, a petty officer was able to disarm him before he could use that pistol. But that was another flash point. Now, at this point, the CEO, the commanding officer, and the executive officer, who happened to be a black man, were able to calm them down. They showed up and spent about an hour with them and they thought it was all over. But then the captain of the ship did something else. He ordered the Marines to the hangar bay and flight deck. And with the idea of protecting aircraft and material and so forth, but the captain of those Marines took it a step further and he decided to issue a dispersal order. That is to break up any groups Of three or more sailors. No, we're not talking about sailors causing issues, but just sailors walking through or assembling any place on the ship. Unfortunately, and this was a huge issue with regard to what happened later, those sailors were confronted, black sailors only, and the Marines did not carry out the dispersal order against any white sailors. Now, that is undisputed. And in my book, I talk about that. The executive officer himself testified before Congress that that unilateral dispersal of only black sailors, quote, started the incident. And that was very aggressive dispersal, clubbing with nightsticks, takedowns, and handcuffing. There were many serious injuries to black sailors at that point, with head and facial lacerations and even broken bones. And following those incidents on the hangar bay, many black sailors, as well as white sailors, armed themselves. And then small groups of both black and white sailors started roaming the ship, assaulting sometimes kind of, totally unprovoked assaulting each other. Now, some of the prior reports of this and publications would point this as being a shipwide riot, uh, utter chaos. Uh, that is a, a gross overstatement. There was no shipwide violence. As a matter of fact, the flight operations continued uninterrupted that evening and continued the next morning uninterrupted. Some of the reports even indicated this was a mutiny, and that's not the case. And I take Great pains in my book to point out why, in fact, it was not a mutiny.
1: I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, learn the fascinating story of a sailor's experience aboard one of America's Liberty ships in World War II in Armageddon in the Arctic Ocean with author Paul Gill. And before we return to the conversation, if you're enjoying this story from the Vietnam War, check out our earlier program, Mended Wings, the Vietnam War Experience, through the eyes of 10 Purple Heart helicopter pilots with author Colin Cahoon. You now
0: I've known a lot of Vietnam vets uh, through my career and my personal life. And I, I'm, I'm, there, there's probably some out there, there has to be, that were not shot down. But I have to tell you, I've never, I never—I don't recall ever meeting one. All of these, all these guys, even if they weren't injured, and there are a lot of them who are uh, Purple Heart recipients, but all of them were shot down at least once, twice, sometimes six to ten times. They were definitely the, the, the pointed end of the spear of the American military yeah. effort, and they, they took a disproportionate amount of uh, beating as a result.
1: It's show 102 from season one, and you'll easily find it in our past episodes. Now, at trial, the defendants were all Black, even though, as you mentioned, both sides were involved. When you came on board with the trial, did you feel this was odd?
0: Well, it was more than odd. It was a travesty. Uh, It was blatantly discriminatory in the fact that there was selective prosecution by the Navy of only Black sailors. Initially, 25 were charged, and not a single white sailor. And no one seemed to take notice of that at the time. Uh, But I think there was probably a good reason for that. And that was because the Navy carried out a totally one-sided investigation. With very few exceptions, they refused to take any statements from black sailors. We're talking about victims here. Uh, And instead only took statements from white sailors, a couple hundred or more. And Congress even got involved. They sent a special subcommittee to the Naval Air Station in San Diego. But they also had a very one-sided investigation, closed-door hearings. And in that, they only invited senior naval officers. The only senior Black officer was the executive officer who testified. And only two or three uh, white, excuse me, Black sailors, uh, but 70 or 80 white sailors were interviewed during those hearings. Um, It was also exacerbated because of the fact the captain of the ship, when the ship arrived in San Diego, he ordered all of his sailors not to talk to the media. He prohibited them. And they would have been in violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice if they had talked to the media. As a result, and I don't fault the media here, but they were getting only one side of the story. And that's the reason. Ultimately, my subtitle to my book is the untold story.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Now, the other part of that of that untold story, very briefly, is the fact that there was pre-trial confinement of all of the defendants for months leading up to the trial. Now, the key word here, Rob, is pre-trial. They were not convicted, presumed innocent, and it was virtually unheard of to have sailors in pretrial confinement on assault charges and it was not only just confinement half of them were in maximum confinement many of them were in solitary confinement for months including a couple of my clients as a matter of fact one of my clients attempted suicide in his cell in solitary fortunately they got to him in time so that was just one of the many injustices
1: Now, one of the clients, one of your clients, I believe you had six clients, was Cleveland Mallory, one of the black sailors. And he was singled out by by name, by one of the white sailors who testified that he was in a bar with him and he knew him and he was singled out as one of the perpetrators. But it was discovered after his testimony, the white sailor's testimony, that he had lied. How did you and the defense team discover that fact?
0: Well, the story of Cleveland Mallory's trial is so incredible. You you would have thought it happened in the 1950s Jim Crow South. Actually, of course, it happened in the 1970s military courtroom. Mallory, by any account, was an outstanding sailor. He was 19 years old. He was from Pittsburgh. He had boarded the ship right after his basic training and just before it sailed for Westpac on these crews, that evening he was locking up the ship's store where he worked when three white sailors approached him and started beating on him. One was carrying a lead pipe and broke several of his ribs, totally unprovoked assault while he was just locking up the ship's store. He tried to report that the next day, and they refused to take a statement. Now, unfortunately, that was true of virtually every black sailor who was injured. They refused to take any statements from them. And if that weren't enough to add insult to injury, they made up totally bogus charges against him and claimed that he had assaulted on a separate incident, a separate part of the ship, uh, a white sailor. And you already made mention of this government witness who lied, He was the lone accuser. He was the only person who claimed that he saw Cleveland Mallory commit this assault. Well, when I interviewed him prior to trial, I wanted to know why it was that he even knew Cleveland Mallory to identify him because they worked in totally separate parts of the ship, had no reason to ever interact. We're talking about a a floating city of 45 men. And he claimed that he knew him because a few months earlier, when the ship was in Hong Kong, he met him in the Pussycat Bar and actually befriended him, spent hours together with him. And it was totally fabricated. And at the trial, after he testified that he knew Cleveland because of that bar encounter, uh, I put on the division officer for Cleveland Mallory, who testified This is a Perry Mason moment, if I ever had one. Mm -hmm. He'd never been in Hong Kong. The Cleveland Mallory had missed the sailing of the ship from Subic Bay. As a matter of fact, he was charged at a captain's mast for a short, unauthorized absence for missing the sailing of the ship. So at that point, the sole government witness testimony uh, was totally uh, uncovered as being perjury. And despite that, the military judge convicted him it shocked the entire courtroom. And he also gave him a bad conduct discharge and kicked him out of the Navy. Now, at that point, our defense team was just shattered. Um, I should point out the NAACP was very helpful in these trials. They had gotten involved by hiring uh, several civilian attorneys from California to sit as co-counsel with us during those trials. Several were Black attorneys themselves. And We came up with the idea, those of us on the defense team, that we needed to do something to try to overturn Mallory's conviction. And the NAACP put up the funds for us to hire an undercover agent. He was actually a former Marine officer and and, uh, FBI agent. He befriended the accuser and got him to admit on secret tapes that he not only hated Black people, but that he had made up his entire story about Cleveland Mallory. And uh, that became public. Of course, these trials were receiving national attention every day. Mm -hmm. And when those perjury tapes became public, uh, that was a sort of a turning point in all of the trials. Um, and we were successful because of those perjury tapes to get Cleveland Mallory's conviction uh, reversed. I took great pains in, in terms of telling this to uh, make sure that I was fair and balanced in the story. I'm very critical of, of the fact that this uh, many of these facts never got brought to light and I wanted to make sure that I was also being fair and uh, and so, With regard to the Cleveland Mallory story, as with the entire book, I wanted to tell both sides of the story. I didn't hold back, for example, on the assaults uh, by the black sailors against white sailors, but I brought out for the first time that there were many assaults against them.
1: Right. Now, what was the result, uh, final result of the trial? And a follow-up to that, do you believe race relations have improved in the Navy since the... uh, Early
0: 1970s? Well, your first question about the final result, I'm happy to report it was very positive. And it was largely because of those perjury tapes. Uh, I shudder to think what might have happened if we did not have the benefit of those perjury tapes, because as I mentioned, they made national news. And from the very outset, the government witnesses began backing off and retracting their statements. Uh, Most of these cases. Uh, depended upon identifications um, during these altercations. And we're talking again, if you imagine a city of 4,500 people trying to identify somebody that you never saw or met before. And I believe that many of those government witnesses were not sure of their identifications to begin with. And when these perjury tapes came out, they began being concerned themselves about committing perjury and started backing off. Right. And so the results were very positive. Uh, Six of the black sailors were totally exonerated. Three had the charges dropped before trial. Uh, Three had acquittals. And of course, that included the reversal of Cleveland Mallory's conviction. There were several plea agreements. Uh, Once these perjury tapes came out, the government started offering some very uh, good plea bargains, And if they would agree to lesser charges, maybe a a simple assault or something, uh, they would be given very lenient sentences. And that's what happened with seven of them. Uh, And then there were five, finally there were 10 of them that went to trial without plea agreements. But in all of those cases, they were found guilty of only lesser charges. Uh, and they also received lenient sentences. It got to the point, I think, because of the embarrassment of the Navy and the publicity that arose from these cases and the pretrial confinement and so forth, uh, that they began offering uh, these young black sailors early outs with honorable discharges, and and several of them took them up on that. Well, that's good. Yeah, and the and the best result I can tell from all of this is that not a single sailor received a bad conduct discharge. And that's huge when you think of the ramifications uh, for a lifetime of a military person who receives a bad uh, conduct discharge.
1: That's for sure.
0: You asked about progress and race. I don't have a quick and good answer for you to that because uh, I'd like to think that we've made progress over the past 50 years, um, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, I know the immediate result of these cases was positive uh, because of the Kitty Hawk trial, as well as the similar incident on the USS Constellation, a sister carrier that was in San Diego. Three weeks later, there was a sit-down strike on that. 120 Black sailors refused to return to the ship because they were complaining about and trying to talk about the same kind of racial discrimination was going on on the Kitty Hawk. And as a result of that, that is when the Congress got involved with their subcommittee. And the really positive result from both of these incidents was the fact that Admiral Zumwalt, he was the chief of naval operations, he cracked down on racial discrimination in the Navy. That had been one of the strong points when he came on two years earlier as the chief of naval operations, but he really took it to heart after these incidents. Uh, He actually held a meeting, I talk about this in my book, of senior officers, admirals in in Washington, D.C., and he told them, if you don't make race relations your top priority, you can retire from the Navy right now. That was pretty harsh words. And I actually have had many veterans tell me that the entire military went through mandatory race relations training as a result of these incidents. Um, But getting back to your question, what about now? I don't pretend to have any unique insight into race relations in the present day military. And one of the things that makes me a little hesitant about being optimistic about it, I'd like to think we've come a long way.
1: Yeah, so would I. (laughs)
0: is the fact that if you go back 50 years ago, number one's prior to the Kitty Hawk incident, the Department of Defense had a special task force that was formed to study whether or not there was racial discrimination, in the US military justice system. And they found that there was widespread racial discrimination. And I talk about that in the book. Now keep in mind, this was a few months before the incident on the Kitty Hawk. Now, if you fast forward to just last year, I happened to see an episode on the 60 Minutes TV program about ongoing racial discrimination in the military to this day. And that's why I am a little disheartened about what progress we might have made. And they created another task force and uh, was formed to study just that issue.
1: Well, let's... Let's hope that that helps and uh, keeps improving the situation. The book is called Against All Tides, the untold story of the USS Kitty Hawk race riot. Marv, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been fantastic.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rob. That's it for this
1: episode. Next time, learn the fascinating story of a sailor's experience aboard one of America's Liberty ships in World War II in Armageddon in the Arctic Ocean with author Paul Gill. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.